This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 427. The difference between financially successful people and those who aren't is simply that they're automating the most important things. You'll see this time and time again. It's not that they're remembering at the end of every month to put money into savings. It's not that they're like remembering any of those things. It's that they're setting up a system to make sure that the important things happen automatically. A hope-filled money guide to increase savings, earnings, and giving and actually enjoy it all while designing a life of freedom and eternal impact? Yep. My guest today is Bob Loddick, and we'll be chatting with him about his new book, Simple Money, Rich Life, and how to create a money system so you can spend less time and get better results. The one category budget, a way to get 80% of the results with 20% of the work, ways to earn more in the digital era, and much, much more. This is the Read to Lead podcast. Hi, my name is Jeff Brown, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. But you and I know it goes beyond that, don't we? It's not enough just to read. If you're going to read and learn, you have to do something with that knowledge. And that comes to taking really good notes. And since I wrote Read to Lead, the book uh, that came out last August, I have found that the struggle, almost universal struggle for people is an inability to take effective notes or take notes that when they go back to them, they're actually useful. What if instead the notes you took today connected easily with notes from the past such that new ideas and insights were developed along the way? Well, as you might imagine, over the last few decades and reading the number of books that I do, uh, note-taking is something I've, I like to think I've gotten pretty good at. And so I've begun to help people with that process. In fact, right now I'm taking uh, 20 people through the first ever note-making mastery cohort. We'll be wrapping that up in about a month. And if you would like to get on the waiting list for the next one, you can do that by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. Whether you prefer taking notes by hand Using digital tools or a combination of the two, we walk you through how to best collect, connect, contribute to, and create with the notes that you're taking. Again, it's all a part of Note Making Mastery, the cohort. The next one will be in the fall. If you'd like to get notified about it when it is open for registration, again, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. Bob Bloddick, an award-winning blogger and podcaster, has been a trusted voice for Christians wanting to find financial freedom the way God intended. He has shared timeless wisdom and practical strategies with more than 50 million readers, listeners, and students through his blog, online courses, and Seed Time Money podcast. He's been around, in other words. Uh, His brand new book is called Simple Money, Rich Life, Achieve True Financial Freedom and Design a Life of Eternal Impact. And I'm delighted to welcome him here, Bob. Thanks for being on the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, I am excited to be here. Thanks for having me, man. The last two times I saw Bob in person was my book launch party. So thank you, Bob, for showing up. Appreciate that. The time before that, I think, was the two of us helping move Andy Traub into his new house. And boy, there were five of us counting Andy. And I thought it was going to be a couple hours. It turned into like five or six hours. I don't think I've ever worked that hard in my entire life. Well, yeah. And you you remember, like we both sweat like probably five to 10 pounds that day <laughs> being in the back of that box truck. Absolutely. Man, it was uh, fun to spend that time with you, but I would have much yeah. rather been doing something else. <laughs> we'll do coffee next time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because we're, we're not that far apart for sure. Well, first of all, I love the cover of the book. I, I, I not only love what's inside of it, but I love the outside of it too. I think it's just a, 
very artistic. Uh, I would call it uh, the word graceful comes to mind. Can I use that word? That's exactly what we want, man. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I want to start with just a little bit of your story, uh, particularly a story that I've heard you tell elsewhere that I think falls around the day before your 21st birthday. Tell me a little bit about this process and how you kind of came to, to do what you do now. Yeah. So for me, this whole journey kicked off. Like you said, it was the day before my 21st birthday. I would have told you if you would ask me that day in the morning that this is, I'm living the dream. You know, basically I was living in a beach town. Uh, I had a convertible. It was Friday. It was payday. My friends were coming down to celebrate my birthday on the next day. Um, like I, I had everything going for me. But <laughs> as I'm driving to go to the bank, to deposit my paycheck. As I'm driving down the road, all of a sudden my car just completely stops. Like I didn't even have time to pull over, just completely dies in the middle of the road. Right in front of this minor league ballpark as a game was getting ready to begin. So mm-hmm. I'm stopped in the middle of the road. Cars are all piled up behind me, driving by, everybody's looking, doing all that stuff. Meanwhile, I don't know much about cars. I keep turning the key, hoping that you know after like eight or 10 times, it's gonna start. <laughs> So I keep turning it. And finally, after about 10 times, I realize, all right, this isn't going anywhere. And as I start like kind of thinking of what's going to happen next, I'm like, this is turning out to be a really big problem because I just picked up my paycheck. I was going to the bank to deposit it so that I could get the cash or cash out or whatever to go pay my landlord because rent was due that day. Mm. Um, in which, so I had about three hours left. Everything was going to work out fine. But now I'm realizing, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. And if I don't get there by 5 p.m. to pay the landlord, then she's going to tack on $50 late fee. Now, again, $50 shouldn't be the end of the world. But for me, it kind of was mm. because my paycheck was just enough to cover rent, which is a whole nother problem that we can discuss another time. <laughs> and so I wouldn't have been able to pay that late fee. Mm. And so as I'm thinking through all this, like I'm realizing, like, how am I going to get this car towed? and then fixed and repaired and then to the bank and then to pay my rent all in the next three hours. And and it was in this moment that I realized I've been living this kind of um, house of cards type of financial life where everything was stacked up on top of each other, but it was such a weak foundation. And then just, you know, little breeze blew of a bad alternator in my car. And just like that, my whole financial life was coming into chaos. And so I remember sitting in that car, like gripping the steering wheel in tears and just mm-hmm. being like, God, I need help. Like I thought I knew how to do this money thing. And so if you have any wisdom that you want to share and help me out of this, then I am all ears. And that's kind of where my whole journey began. I could have told you it was the alternator. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. So, you know, you've done pretty well for yourself. I mean, uh, I've, I've read that you paid your house off by, by 31. You made a goal to give away a million dollars by the, by the time you turned 40. You don't look a day over 35, but I understand you hit that goal as well. So it sounds like God heard you that day. How would you characterize it? Yeah. So that was, like I said, that was my kind of turning point moment. And I think a lot of people have these moments. I remember Tony Robbins saying something in one of his books where he's like, until the pain of your situation becomes big enough that you really want to change, like Mm. you're not going to make any change. And Mm. so that's what it was for me. It's like the pain and the realization of how bad my financial life was, even though I had been trying to hide it, was just so evident that it's like, all right, something has to change. And so from that point, um, and one other thing I'll add there is part of this is a humility thing of just admitting that I need to learn, I need to grow. Um, And for me, I was pretty prideful. I'd worked at a bank. I had grown up wanting to be an accountant. So I just thought I knew everything about money. (laughs) And so through that humbling and realizing that I didn't know everything and needed to learn something, like I just started reading as much as I could. 
I started reading all, every magazine I could get my hands on. Um, podcasts weren't really around at that point. This is early 2000s, you know, but everything I could get my hand on, every book, every magazine, any kind of workshops or seminars like I would go to. And that just kind of kickstarted my journey. And for me, you know, as a believer, like I found that the Bible talked about money. I'm like, that's fascinating. The Bible <laughs> actually has some timeless wisdom in there. And so I began sharing what I was learning, you know, in, on my own journey on a blog that I started in 2007. And that was kind of like, how my life began to change and tie into our business all at the same time. I can't help but notice on the front of this beautiful cover, there's the name Bob Lodick. Yeah. But there's a mystery woman who continually pops up throughout the book uh, and takes over for a paragraph or two. Who is this mystery woman, Bob? And how did the two of you end up choosing to work together? Yeah. So that's that's what makes the book great, to be honest with you. It's a mystery <laughs> woman in here. Uh, but my wife, Linda, uh, chimed in a lot. Actually, probably about, I don't know, maybe 5% of the book or so. It, she's in it. And yeah, ultimately, my name's on it. I, I wish her name was on it, but this is the way that worked out with the publishing company. But yeah, we sought out to create a financial book unlike any other financial book that I've ever read, because I've read about 100 of them at this point. We wanted something that was a a financial book that people who don't want to read financial books would actually <laughs> be able to read and right. get something out like you know my goal is that somebody can come into the book uh, take action on the simple steps that we lay out and then get on with their lives and like not have to read 10 other financial books like so that was the goal how can we create a book that anyone could enjoy even if they don't normally like financial books and also that they this would be the only one that they need and so part of this was bringing Linda on this journey and pulling her into this because she is the complete opposite of anyone you would ever think to talk about money she is I call her you know I'm technically a certified educator in personal finance and she is the certified spender of all all of our money. And so she has had it at a lot of uh, real real life to the book. Mm, for sure. I, I enjoyed her interludes, uh, I'll call them very much. Yeah. But I think it was yeah. smart to include her that way. Um, talk about, Bob, this idea that suggests that just by paying attention to what you currently spend, you, you'll actually spend less. In other words, does that mean you don't even have to try to spend less? It'll just naturally happen if you simply pay attention? Is that, is that, is that what yeah. I'm hearing you say? Yeah, 100%. So that's the interesting thing. I mean, anybody who's been to like a nutritionist or something like that, and they say, hey, start writing down everything that you eat. Mm -hmm. Like anyone who's done this exercise knows that just by simply writing it down, you start eating better. Even if you're not trying to eat better, it just happens automatically. And it's the same way with our money, just like you said. Mm. It's an automatic thing that happens. There was one guy who I remember reading another financial blogger. He started doing this exercise. And from one month to the next, he spent 50% less money from one month to the next. And again, he's, he mentioned this like three different times. He's like, I did not try to spend less at all. I promise <laughs> you, I did not try to. I literally just wrote it down. And this is what happened. Mm. And um, and we've had we've heard this from students over and over and over again. I spent like $500 less. I spent $800 less. Mm. I spent $200 less without even trying simply by doing that simple exercise. Something that I think is, is probably going to be revelatory for a lot of people, uh, especially those who are overwhelmed just thinking about having to put time and effort in into, into budgeting their money, especially if they don't consider it their strong suit like me. Uh, describe this idea of the one category budget, this yeah. idea that you can get 80% of the results with 20% of the effort. Yeah. And I'm assuming you've talked about the 80-20 rule and most people kind of have a general understanding of that at this point. Yeah. Um, and so it's real common phenomenon that you can trace to all kinds of di different industries and patterns. And I remember seeing this in our business in different areas. And I remember thinking, like, I wonder if this would apply to kind of budgeting and what that looks like. And so, you know, we're 
thankful we have almost a couple thousand students in our some of our financial classes. And so I was able to kind of look at some of their results and see, wow, I think there's a pattern here. And it turns out that most of us have one specific category, one or two, where we have the most room for improvement. And therefore, if we only focus on that one category and just put our financial efforts towards that and not necessarily worry about the ones where it's like small change, we can actually do that. We can get 80% of the results with just 20% of the effort. And so that's what we call the one category budget. Yeah. And it's such a simple concept, but the point is like just focus most of your energy on the actual area where the problem is. You know, I, I, I watched a, a YouTube video of yours today. I'm not sure if it's a, a recent one. I think it is. Uh, but you talked about how you were earning, I think it was 400 extra dollars a month through, I think you said crypto bots or something like yeah. that. I, I don't know yeah. if I'm getting the verbiage right, but uh, that's just one example, I guess, but, uh, of what in your view are the essential things we need to understand if we want to earn more in this digital era. So yeah, I would, I would put this in the advanced category of not essential stuff that we have to know, but yeah. um but yeah, but I, I've been getting more and more into crypto over the really about the last two or three years. And mm -hmm. um, I'm just exploring a lot of different directions and things going on. And it's just fascinating. Um, it very much feels like the internet in the early mid nineties, yeah. like just in terms of the technological breakthrough, also in terms of the scams and like the um, uneasy about that, like everything that's happening. But I have no doubt that um, what's going on from a technological perspective is going to shape our financial future. And decade two out from now, like we're going to see that this was the beginnings of that. And there's a whole lot that needs to be improved and changed and tweaked, but but we're on the, the edge of something really cool in the financial world. Mm. I wonder if you would talk a bit about automating finances. Uh, this is something that, that I used to struggle with, uh, especially with regard to giving. I was not a consistent giver, but then I finally automated it and miraculously became a consistent giver. But I struggled with that because I thought, well, now I'm not physically writing the check or now I'm not yeah. giving manually online. Don't I need to like, you know, know when I'm parting with it and be a cheerful giver and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just realized though that the way it was going to happen and it was going to happen consistently is if I did it that way. What are some things that we can do maybe in just a few minutes to, to better automate our finances, whether it's giving or the other stuff? Yeah. So automation is such a powerful thing because I used to grow up, I just grew up believing that financially successful people just had tons of willpower and they were really smart. <laughs> and it's just not that. Like the truth is like the difference between financially successful people and those who aren't is simply that they're automating the most important things. It's simply that you'll see this time and time again. It's not that they're remembering at the end of every month to put money into savings. It's not that they're like remembering any of those things. It's that they're setting up a system to make sure that the important things happen automatically. So such a powerful concept, like you just mentioned with giving, like you were inconsistent, you started automating and then now you're perfectly consistent. It's like, hmm. and we can apply this to many areas of our financial lives, but giving is a great important one. That one's really important to me as well, but saving, you know, and so this can actually be saving, like building up an emergency fund. This can also be uh, saving for retirement, saving for kids, college, like all of these things offer some solution to be able to make it automatic. And it's oftentimes, like you said, this is just a few minutes. Like mm -hmm. it might be a 10 minute process, a one-time effort to set yourself up for long-term financial success in a lot of these areas. So super powerful concept. What about you know, every, every entity under the sun wants me to go to automated bill pay? 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And and I'm often reluctant to do that, and I'll set aside time every month to you know pay them through my bank or go to their website, the individual entity website, and, and pay that way. Just because I, I don't I don't like giving up that control. Would you yep. would you have the same advice to automate there, or do you, do you have uh, something else in mind? Yeah, so there's there's mixed uh, opinions on that. Um, I personally, I'm like you. Like, I actually would rather main contr- maintain control. Mm-hmm. So I have a rhythm where once a month, I, I try to stack all of my bills, any of the dates that I can change. I try to stack them all on the same date. So once a month, I pay bills, and some of them I'll pay a little bit early if I wasn't able to move the date. But all the other ones, I get stacked on that one date. And so I have a one time process where you know I spend 20 minutes once a month paying all of my bills for that exact reason because I used to work at a bank. And uh, I saw too many situations where vendors or merchants would take advantage of that. And mm-hmm. once you set them up automatic, like it's really hard to cancel or they'll be difficult to get. There's just too many merchants yeah. like that, that um, I personally don't want to give up that trust. And so there's plenty of people who do automate all that and you can set it all up now to have all that automated. And it's nice as long as everything works. And one other thing, I want to come back to the original question you asked about giving, and I don't know how deep you want to go here, but that is a wrestle that I've dealt with as well. It feels more intentional when it's like I have some cash in my hand or I write a check or something, I drop it in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's something that we've kind of gone back and forth on because I think there's pros and cons to both sides. There's a a pro to being consistent, but there's also something about, I don't know, just having the, the action of doing it. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm kind of in the spot where it's like I could go either way at this moment. Like, what we're actually doing is logging onto our bank account or an, onto our church's website and manually submitting it on there each month. So, it's mm-hmm. not an automatic thing for us, but I'm okay with that because we have a habit again, like back to our bill pay thing once a month, every single month I do it. And so, this is part of that process. And if that was, if I wasn't consistent in that, I would definitely make it automatic. But since yeah. I am consistent and I have a rhythm where it's like, I know that I know that I know that I'm going to keep doing this every day in the month or in the first of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, I'm comfortable sticking with it. I, uh, I identify so much for that. And yeah, I go back and forth a bit too. I, I read at one point in time, you and Linda, that was, uh, money was a point of contention, I guess. Yeah. How did you turn that around? What were the circumstances specifically, if, there, if there's a specific uh, circumstance you can point to? And, and how did you manage to pull through that? Yeah. So like so many financial couples, like we are just very different. And especially at the beginning, just how we viewed money, how we spent money, how we thought about money. Uh, you know, we had different upbringings and how our parents spent money, like everything was different, you know? And so we come together, we both were a financial mess, you know, had tons of debt that we brought together in the marriage and different ideas of what was important, like what to do with it and all the stuff. So yeah, we had some pretty big differences in how we thought about it. I mean, the main one being that I tend to be more the saver, tend to be more the money guy, money nerd, spreadsheet, whatever minded person. And she is the just run out and spend it before it burns a hole in my pocket type of woman. <laughs> like, so you can imagine like this creates some friction and tension. And, uh, and so one of the things that we did that I think was really, really helpful. Two, I'll give you two things. So the first thing that helped me a lot and ultimately helped our marriage a lot was, again, humbling myself and acknowledging that, yes, we're different, but that doesn't mean that I'm right. 
when it comes to money. Mm. So even though I'm a numbers guy, I'm looking at the numbers like I created a budget. This is right. This is right. This is just the math, you know? It, and it was humbling for me to admit that she might have some value to add to this equation. And I'm really glad that I did because it ultimately brought a whole lot more peace to our marriage. And as I kind of yielded that and considered that maybe she had some value to add, considered that maybe some of the decisions that we made as a couple about money should be more guided by her than me, that softened her heart. And so then she was willing to kind of bend more in my direction in some areas. And so it just created a mutual submission, mutual yielding thing that I think was really, really beneficial for us. So that was kind of the first thing. The second thing that I'll add that I think I found to be incredibly helpful. Um, and we have had students over and over and over again who have told us that this has been so helpful for them. And it's such a simple, practical thing. But if you are doing any sort of budget, even if you're not doing a budget, at the beginning of the month, set aside whatever, a couple hundred dollars for each of you in completely different categories. Okay. And you can have them be separate accounts, however you want to do this, or it can just be cash. But the point is each month set aside a certain amount of money with each of your individual names on it. So there's no judgment from the other person on how you spend it. There's no, you can do whatever the heck you want, even if your spouse thinks that's you know silly and stupid, which Linda thinks of how I spend my money, but she doesn't care because it's not in one bucket. It's not like I go to Lowe's and buy a saw and she's like, we were going to buy groceries. Now we can't buy groceries. Like, there's none of that tension because it's right. already been pre-assigned to her and to me. And that reduced our money fights by probably 90%. That one simple thing. Mm. You know, I know there's somebody listening right now uh, who is getting a phone call about every day from a number they uh, now instantly recognize. And it's uh, a collection agent person type. They're fun phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They keep ignoring the phone call, ignoring them, yeah. thinking, you know, they, thinking that it'll just eventually go away. Yeah. How do you recommend folks who find themselves in that situation of uh, maybe, maybe, you know, COVID hit hard and they made their mortgage before making their credit card payment. And one thing led to another. And now they're at a place where they've got a couple they're trying to catch up on and they don't want to answer those phone calls. What do they do? Yeah. Well, Ignoring them is just not the best solution. The best mm. thing to do is actually to answer and talk to them. Mm. You know, and they're not, they're bulldogs. Like they're not going to mm. let go, but they're also not going to quit calling. Um, you know, so the original lender, you know, eventually will stop calling because I'll pass it to the collections agency. Right, right. Sell it off to them. But the point is, like, those calls aren't going to stop. And so the best thing you can do is actually talk to them. And, you know, and in my experience, they're not always necessarily the nicest or most friendly people or the most enjoyable conversation, but, but mm. still, like talk to them and communicate to them like a real human being, like tell them, express what you were doing, the situation you've been in, like, and they're probably not really going to care, but it's a better thing for you to just talk to them rather than mm -hmm. just ignore them. At least it shows that there's some, you're trying to some extent, talk to them, tell mm -hmm. them what's going on, make a plan. Like that's something that they want to hear, you know, say I'm working on a budget, I'm doing all this stuff. Uh, and that's just one of the best steps that you can take at the beginning. I mean, there's a whole lot here we can kind of go down. But I think from that point, start there. And then personal finance in general, there's two knobs you can turn. You can either reduce your expenses to free up more cash or you can increase your income. And so you have to start working on one of those two and probably both if you're in that situation. Like, how yeah. can I bring in some extra income via side hustle or whatever um, to kind of solve this immediate problem? And then how can I start cutting stuff temporarily so that we can start climbing out of this hole a little bit? Uh, what do you mean, Bob, when you say that financial success is not measured by what we accumulate, but instead by what we give away. Something, again, that you've done a lot yeah. of. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's part of the thing. It's a little bit what makes this book different is, mm. you know, there's a million financial books out there that will tell you that financial success is 
about what you accumulate. But, but me as a Christian, like I tend to think that it's about what we give. I think that when we think from an eternal perspective, rather than just a short-sighted 80, 90, 100 year perspective, uh, I think true financial success is tied to what we give. And like, I think when we're in eternity, like we're going to be thinking about what we gave more than what we accumulated. And then as soon as we died, we couldn't bring it with us, that type of thing. Mm. So that's what it means. You know, going back to the the credit card question here for just a second, um, there was another question related to that that I wanted to ask you. What are some of the the credit card rules, I guess, that you can share that banks would prefer we don't know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so we create, yeah, basically we, like I said, we got married, we had a ton of credit card debt. We got ourselves in trouble from our credit cards. And so coming out of that, all through our first seven years of marriage or so, Linda mm-hmm. and I decided we weren't going to use a credit card. We we're just going to use a debit card. And that was going to be it because we kept on getting ourselves in trouble with credit cards. So after that seven year period, we're in a very different financial situation. We were a bit more mature. We had more control over what was going on, all the, all the stuff. And we decided, I think we're going to get a credit card and try this out again. But we created these three rules for ourselves to ensure that we would never get in trouble again. And basically, it was three rules that we created. And if we're going to have a credit card, this is what we're going to do. So the first one was that we would never use it for discretionary expenses. And so that means that I'm never going to go into the grocery store um, with a credit card. I'm never going to go into Lowe's with a credit card. I'm going to use it for things that aren't going to inflate where there's no temptation to overspend. Mm. Uh, And that right there is such a powerful thing because um, there's a lot of expenses that I, you know, things I pay for each month, where there's no temptation to overspend. So a cell phone bill or something, or the electric bill, or, you know, there's just a lot of, things that I have no temptation to overspend on them. But if I'm in Lowe's, there's a temptation. So I don't bring it into Lowe's or not use it Lowe's, you know? <laughs> so that was the first one. The second rule was that we would never carry a balance because as long as we're not carrying a balance, then we're never paying an interest charge. We're never paying anything to the credit card companies. And we are using the tool, the credit card is a tool, we're using that for free. Uh, and so um, we decided that if we ever carried a balance from one month to the next, that we just cut them up and be done with them. Those two rules kept us safe and kept us from being able to use this tool without being harmed by it. And then the third rule was just that we decided if we are going to have a credit card, we are going to get one that actually works for us. Because through all this, I began discovering like credit card rewards. And mm-hmm. then one of the biggest ahas I had was that, you know, I just thought, okay, most credit cards have a rewards program. They're all probably pretty similar. But it turns out the difference between a decent or mediocre a rewards program versus like some of the best out there, it's not like twice as good. It's like 10 or 15 times better oh, wow. in terms of the rewards that you get and how far they can go. And so we just decided if we're going to do this, we are going to, we're going to do it well and we're going to use the best card out there. You care to share what that card is? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. We can dive all into it. So, um, I mean, the, the long story short is it kind of depends on your situation, what you want to do with that card. Um, yeah, sure. so I can put a link in the show notes where we kind of break down per thing, but for us, mm-hmm. the, uh, the card that we've used most of the time has been the Chase Sapphire Preferred. And it's just been a fantastic card that we've used to, I mean, that card with a couple others in, in conjunction, we ended up getting a hundred hotel nights and a hundred, um, flights all free over about a five-year period wow. from using credit card rewards the right way. And so there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity here. You know, you're not far from, from Dave Ramsey's headquarters. Have you ever thought of going into his front door and you know, holding up a credit card and saying, in your face? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't want to pick a fight with Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I just want to run down kind of the, the, how the book is laid out here real quick before we wrap. Save all you can. That's part one. 
earn all you can. That's part two. Give all you can. That's part three. And enjoy it all is part uh, four. Anything from the book I didn't ask about, Bob, that you would like to to add to the discussion? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, adding, tying this whole thing up in a bow is that Mm. there's so many people that think you have to be a financial expert to be successful financially. Mm. And that's part of why we named this book, Simple Money, Rich Life, because Einstein has this quote where he says something to the effect of make everything as simple as it can be, but no simpler. And I I love Mm. that. I especially love it coming from him. Like Mm. such a smart guy in a world of so many complexities and he's focusing on making things simple. And so the book isn't elementary, but it's simple. And like, that's the truth that the financial industry doesn't want us to know. Mm. Like they want us to all believe that it's so difficult and it's so complicated to be a financial success, but it's really not. It's just doing a handful of small things and doing them consistently. And it's, it's not rocket science. It really isn't that difficult. And so, so yeah, that was kind of our main motivation with just kind of tying all this up into a book. Let me ask you about books. You probably knew that was coming. Whether it's a book on finance or or some other topic, uh, what's a book or two maybe over the course of the years that has had a, a huge impact on you? Maybe it's a book that you recommend to others or you go back to from time to time. Yeah. So I'm going to hopefully give you a recommendation that Hopefully no one else has given you with it. It's <laughs> kind of like out there a little bit odd, but okay. uh, are you familiar with Tim Urban? He runs the blog Wait But Why. Yes. I, I Wait But Why, I know. Yeah. 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 That's his blog. So um, very popular blogger. Anyway, he yeah. wrote, and this was probably five or six years ago. He wrote, <laughs> it's hilarious to even say this, but he wrote, I think, four blog posts about Elon Musk that ended up being like 70, 80,000 words or something. Um, wow. And like just monstrous. And so he ended up putting it into a book. I don't think it's in paperback, but you can get it as like, I think Kindle or PDF or something like that. He sells mm-hmm. it from his website and you can actually read it on his website for free. But anyway, I read it this year, I think in February, and it just has really shaped my thinking. Really, really powerful. I, I Yeah, I should call it a book. Like, yeah, it's technically a book, but it's also <laughs> a blog post, whatever we're going to call it. It's just really, really good. Now, what what is the name of it again? Did you say? <laughs> I don't even know what the name of it is. Like, <laughs> I, I, if you Google Tim mm-hmm. Urban and Elon Musk, um, you'll find it. Like, that's okay. how I okay. find it. Well, I was going to give you credit for you know suggesting a book that indeed has never been suggested before. But before I can give you credit for that, I you have to know what the name of the book is. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find it as soon as we're done. I'll find out. Send it over. I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, let me ask you about some of your um, personal habits. Perhaps can we get into your yeah. personal life here a little? Let's do it. I'm teach this framework called Dream Big, the five personal habits that will supercharge your life. And as I have done this podcast for about uh, almost nine years, uh, I interviewed a lot of people like yourself, a lot of successful authors, folks who, at least on the outside, look like they've got their act together. I have determined that I think a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them practice these habits. And I'd just be curious to know what your take is on them, if you practice them, how you how you implement them. And the first one is this idea of what I call dancing with discomfort. And I, I, we said this offline, but I love how you include an exercise that Tim Ferriss first talked about in a TED Talk, this sort of fear setting as opposed to goal setting really plays into this. Yep. If applicable for you, and I assume it is, what are some examples of ways you try to practice the habit of, of stepping outside your comfort zone on, on a maybe a regular basis even? Yeah. So whenever I think about this, I think back into for a work week where he mm. was talking about how he would go into the mall and just like lay down on the floor in the middle of the mall just to do something uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. I forgot um, about that. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so, yes, I don't do that. But I feel like every successful person or every person who's had any level of success in their life agrees that you have to do things that you are uncomfortable with. Like you mm. cannot 
achieve any level of success without doing that. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Like it's just a constant thing and, and like whatever, every day there's a to-do list and whatever, uh, what was his name? Brian Tracy said the thing about eat the frog. I think mm-hmm. he wrote a book about that, which came from Ben Franklin or somebody said, said that whole concept of whatever the hardest thing is you have to do for that day. Like do that first, right. you know, just get it out of the way. And so, yeah, all I'd say, yes, hundred percent agree with you. With regard to reading, you talked about this book, this uh, yet-to-be-named book uh, that is uh, one of your favorites. <laughs> um, so you read this. What are, what are some methods you use to synthesize what you read? How do you make sure you're going to not just read a book and then forget it, but actually, uh, when appropriate, put what you've learned into action? Yeah. A uh, couple of things I pretty regularly do. I talk to my wife about key concepts that stick out to me about it because as I do, I'm teaching her and I'm internalizing it better. And the other thing that I tend to do is I like as I'm writing, reading a book, I take a sheet of notes that, that really becomes, it's less notes and more of a to-do list. Okay. And so by having that at the end of the book, I now have a to-do list that I intentionally set in front of myself. And like, these are the tasks that I want to do off of that book. And I have found that doing that helps me so much because when I didn't do that, it's, it's amazing. I'd get to the end of the book and I'd remember like a couple of things early on, but I, don't, I was just always missing them. I wasn't getting it done. So that kind of generating a to-do list out of it has been super helpful for me. Mm. I'm a big believer in the idea that uh, managing your energy, not your time, is, mm-hmm. is the key to productivity. There's a book I've got laying around here somewhere that talks all about that, uh, the name of which escapes me now. So I guess... <laughs> I'm in the same pool yeah. as you now. I can't remember the name of books. I'd be curious to know how maybe throughout your career, what are some methods uh, you've used or maybe others that you know, you've watched, you've witnessed, have, have leveraged to increase the amount of time you spend in areas that give you energy and lessen the amount of time you spend in, in the regions that, that zap your energy? I mean, part of this is delegation. You know, mm-hmm. as a business owner, learning to delegate those tasks that suck energy that are the mm-hmm. highest and best use of your time. So that's a part of it. I have a lot of room to grow there, um, but I'm on my way. Done a little bit. Uh, the other thing I think for me has just been identifying when I do certain tasks better and when I perform, you know, so for me, right. writing is a big part of what I do. And so I just write better from whatever, 6, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. And so that window I normally block out every day and that's specifically for writing. And by doing that, it just works so much better than if I try to write in the afternoon or something like that. Whereas right. there are other things like a podcast or something that I can do in the afternoon um, just as well, if not better than I can in the morning. So um, just finding those right times and rhythms has been helpful for me. Not everybody's a morning person. This last one, master your mornings, uh, I call it. And I've had a few people tell me, you know what, Jeff, I don't have a morning ritual. I don't have a morning. And that's fine. Uh, but I, I, I see, it seems to be more often, at least authors anyway, more often than not seem to, to abide by and swear by a morning routine. Do you as well, do, do you have a morning routine? Are there certain morning rituals that, or your morning kind of unfolds the same way every morning or most mornings? Yeah, I absolutely have a morning routine. I actually stole it from Jeff Goins. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, stole it and modified it a little bit, but anyway, I remember him writing a post on Facebook a couple of years ago, like while I was just starting my book writing process. And he said, um, for the last, whatever, 10, 12 years, I've gone to the same coffee shop, sat in the same seat, ordered the same coffee and written 500 words every single day, week in and week out. And that has written me, or that's gotten me to four books, this many blog posts and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, that simple habit is all. I'm like, that's it. I'm doing it. Because (laughs) I had been someone who for so long 
just tried to batch the writing process. And so I would take like Wednesday and make it writing Wednesday and try to write the entire day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it just never worked because a, there was either some reason why I couldn't do it that Wednesday or some crisis that came up or I was sick or whatever, or I would just feel like completely out of it. And I'd just not have a good writing day. And so much depends on it when that's the only day of the week you're doing it. And so it just never worked for me, but this rhythm of, 500 words a day, just do that over and over and over again every day is so, so much easier. And so that's Mm -hmm. what I do. Now I have a spot where I go. Every day I go there, got my laptop and I write and then I read. That's also my reading time too. So I read for about a half an hour, write 500 and then I go work out and that's my rhythm and Mm -hmm. I absolutely love it. And what's great for me anyway, like the nature of what I do is that I feel like a success as soon as I come home from that, like yeah. even if I do nothing else the rest of the day, I did important things for me in the business. And it's like, I feel like it's a success. That's really cool. And I, I know when I wrote my book, I just did the math. I like, it's got to be turned in by this date and I've got to write roughly this many words. And I divided that by, you know, how many weeks have I got? And I'm going to write this many words a week. And how many days a week is that? And I'll write these three days every week. Well, as you just illustrated so beautifully, sometimes life throws you a wrench in uh, in the into into the cog, and a day gets lost for whatever reason, yeah. and and now you're you're playing catch up. So I totally appreciate yeah. that. I think that's a that's a great great system. Yeah. Um, well, this has been fun, uh, Bob. I know you got to go. You've got another important interview uh, just ahead of you, so I want to make sure I get you out of here on time, as promised. Bob's uh, book again is called "Simple Money, Rich Life: Achieve True Financial Freedom and Design a Life of Eternal Impact." It's Bob Lodic. It's a book you should go out and get right now. Uh, even if you just want to read the Linda parts, it's worth whatever you're going to pay for, <laughs> even just for that. Bob, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it, man. I love that guy. If you'd like to connect with Bob or check out the resources he mentioned, like how to travel for free in the U.S., that credit card recommendation post on his site, and also that mysterious Elon Musk-related book. Those links and more you can find on the show notes page for this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 427 for episode 427. And don't forget to put your name on the notifications list if you want to be a part of my next note-making mastery cohort. The next one comes up in the fall. And if you're on that list, you're among the first notified with the first chance to get in because registration will be limited. It's readtoleadpodcast.com slash list to put your name on the list right now. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. Next week, for I think the first time, I'll be interviewing a married couple who have written a book together. They are John David Mann and Anna Gabriel Mann, and the book is The Go-Giver Marriage. John was co-author on the Go-Giver book with Bob Berg several years ago. This is a great one. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That's it for this week. Hope to see you next week. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.